pray together. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning, gathering here this morning. It is by your grace and your mercy that we are here. We thank you. We are grateful. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the GTA who are not able to gather this morning or restricted significantly. Oh Lord, how desperately our communities need refuges of hope to be open on Sundays. So we appeal to you and we call to you, we appeal to a higher authority than all other authorities of flesh and blood and ask, oh God, that you would prevail on behalf of those who are yours as your eyes search to and fro throughout all of the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to you. I pray, oh God, that those lampstands in the GTA that are faithful to you, please open them up. And I pray, Father, that you would keep us open here for your glory's sake. Thank you for the lyrics of that praise song that we just participated in together, oh God, that invited you to open up our eyes to see you, to see how magnificent you are. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so I pray now as we turn our attention to it, that you would show us your glory and your power, your holiness, O God, that it might transform our lives through the work of the power of the Holy Spirit and work its way out into our experiences with those around us, our friends and our neighbors, that we might show forth the magnificent of God in Jesus Christ and his love, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Anybody ready for some good news? Oh, yeah. To the frustrated and to the impatient, to the oppressed, we have some really good news to talk about today and throughout this whole series called Jesus, the reason for the season. But first we have to go through and plow through a little bit of bad news. I hope that's okay because that's really the state of the the text and the situation. You need to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Now, why am I saying Isaiah? I got to pause for a second here. We're probably, we've probably never been pronouncing this right. It's not really Isaiah. I mean, how do you pronounce Israel? Do you say Israel? No, you don't. You say Israel. It's Isaiah. 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 And we just English-wise can't really say that very well. But um, however you're comfortable, Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah would prefer you to say his name correctly. But I'm sure he's all right, and he'll meet you in heaven someday. Um, 
So I'll, I'll sometimes be ambidextrous. I'll just go back and forth. Um, but if D.A. Carson means anything to you, he would be aghast at a Saint Isaiah. But you do what you need to do. Four years ago, actually, I addressed this text. Christmas 2016, for those of you who keep notes and keep records. I didn't just simply pull out that sermon, though, and regurgitate it to you this morning. I just want you to know I redid all the work all over again. But it was amazing as I did review it, and it was entitled back then, From the Midst of the Mess. Can you imagine 2016? From the Midst of the Mess. We knew nothing about mess back then. Everything was fine, sort of. So it was entitled From the Midst of the Mess, and all I can say is those were the good old days, 2016. Those were the good old days. But it's fascinating uh, in kind of a macabre way that the highlighted headings of that sermon are virtually today's news, four years later. And um, the text in, in uh, Isaiah 9 is, is particularly with, the reference, with reference to the verses 8 through 21 but we're going to come back to the first part of, this, of the chapter. But, but in terms of, of 8 to 21, there's some really bad news there. And, and God um, articulates through the prophet what he intends to fix or what needs to be fixed among people. Now, keep in mind, this is back, this is written in about the 9th century B.C. And the same things that needed to be fixed then need to be fixed now. We haven't fixed any of this. It's still the same. And just, just very quickly, verses 8 through 12, um, the headings there are arrogant and haughty independence. Look at the Lord has sent a message against Jacob. This is against his people. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, no big deal, we can rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, who cares, we'll just replace them with cedars. People can do anything, we can fix anything, man can fix anything. Because man is the ultimate replacement of God. Does it sound familiar? We can fix this problem. COVID, we'll fix it. Trust us. We'll get enough chemicals and we'll fix this thing. No worries. The Arameans from the east, the Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Look at verse 13, verse 13 through uh, 17. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. No, no, in fact, they're, they're closing down things. They're shutting God out. They're shutting God out of everywhere, even more so. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them. And those who are guided are led astray. So we've got arrogant and haughty independence. We've got leaders who mislead. 
Now verses 18 to 21, surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. On the right hand, they will devour but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. Brothers who don't love brothers. Three headings. Three areas of discontent that pierce the heart of God and bring upon humanity his judgment. Arrogant and haughty independence, leaders who mislead, and brothers who fail to love brothers. And to this particular scenario, the prophet calls out to them, to a people walking in darkness and living in the shadow of death. That's the state of affairs. Where governments are formed by force or by folly, trust is, uh, truth is rare. Idolatry and injustice are commonplace. And death is front and center. That was then. You thought I was talking about now. No, that was then and that is now. So how appropriate is, that, is it for us today to open our Bibles to this text and here's some good news. Are you ready for some hope? I'm ready for some hope. This text oozes with hope. You won't leave here today discouraged. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't leave here today discouraged. And if you, know, if you don't know him today, I'm appealing to you. If you're distressed and distraught and oppressed and confused and bewildered, that can all change today. That can all change today if you turn your heart over to the Lord. Because the message that comes from the prophet is this. A great light has shone, so rejoice. In all this doom and gloom and the, and the concerns around them and the arrogance of people and the rejection of God and all that's going on and the bloodshed and the oppression and, and the, the disruptions and, and disturbances, embedded in this text is an appeal to God's people to rejoice. So today we will rejoice because a great, great light has shone. The thing is, and Pastor Kelvin uh, began the uh, series last week and, uh, and uh, so well depicted the situation from Eden. And we're chasing the good news of Jesus Christ from Eden to Bethlehem through this series. And since Eden, the descriptions that we find in this prophecy have been have been growing and developing. Since the, the breakdown 
of Adam and Eve in their sinfulness in the Garden of Eden, this has been the state of affairs of humankind. You know, a quick review of what Pastor Calvin said. It began with our, our father and our mother, our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, choosing their own way, choosing independence. When, when Satan came to them in the form of the serpent and sought to allure them away from God or lure them away from God with allurement, he said to them, you, you'll be like God. Now, at first gloss, that seems to be a, an enviable or a, an, a, an admirable pursuit. Because after all, we theologians here in the room today know that, that the pursuit that God has for us is to become Christ-like. So to be like God sounds like a, a very admirable goal. But as he, as he goes on to explain, you will know the difference. You will know good and evil. You will experience good and evil yourself. In other words, they weren't chasing after being like God in character. They were chasing after an opportunity to replace God with themselves so that they could be the counselor, the judge, the king, We'll choose what's good, and we'll choose what's evil. Replacing God with ourselves. If you look around, beloved, if you look around yourself, that's precisely what humankind is all about. The rejection of God is a replacement of God for the arrogance of our own independence to say, we can choose what is right. We can choose what is wrong. We don't need, nor do we want a divine or supernatural to tell us any of this kind of thing. And as a result, the description of humankind, warring, killing, dissatisfied, hating, being destroyed, sickness, death, trusting in human glory, pray to the very governments that are supposed to be trustworthy. So to the war-weary, to the truth-starved, to the justice-deprived, to the conspiracy-fatigued. Anybody conspiracy-fatigued out here today? I sure am. To the sin-burdened, a great light has dawned. Praise God. I'm starting at chapter 9, verse 1 of Isaiah. Isaiah. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. How meaningful this would be to the New Testament audience reading this, and to us, of course. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice. See how many times joy and rejoice is put in there to those in gloom. So don't be distressed, beloved, but rejoice with great and exceeding joy. And here's why. Verse 4. The word for means because. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppression. For, hidden to you in your NIV, but very, very visible in the original, for, the third reason, or second reason, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Third reason to rejoice This exceeding rejoice is the greatest of the reasons. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, I have read this text for decades, decades and decades and decades. But this year, as I looked at it, a phrase jumped out at me. I've read over it, I've looked at it, but, but I know why it jumped out at me this year, and I'm sure you'll understand when I read it to you again. It'll jump out at you as well. And the government will be on his shoulders. Praise the Lord. The government will be on his shoulders. Let that sink in. So today's sermon, (laughs) if we ever get through it, is keep your eyes on the prize. Beloved, keep your eyes on our prize. It will cause you to rejoice every single day of your life, no matter what is happening around us. Keep your eyes on the price. This prize, this is the ultimate, the most amazing resume of a birth announcement ever. The reminder of this big picture truth that favorable political policy is nice to have, but is not necessary for God's people. Can I say that again? Favorable political policy is nice to have, but not necessary for God's people, because the government is on his shoulders. We have a very different view of reality than the world around us. We must, we should, we have to. The record of human history, which is depicted for us here, provides a certainty. And that is that a person or a people who choose to go their own way or choose independence from God for their happiness, for their security, 
for their needs, we'll find that they are led into darkness and despair and gloom every time. But those who turn to the living God and trust in him, a great light shines and their hearts are filled with joy. That's the distinctions that are made here. Let me just quickly run down those causes for rejoicing and then I want to look at uh, just, just break down and, and unpackage for you this child who you know so well if you know the Lord. Uh, it's a great resume reveal. Promise for those in the midst of a mess, defeated, feeling broken, feeling misguided, feeling um, somehow forgetful about what you have. Listen, rejoice. Rejoice, people. Rejoice in the Lord today. God is working. God was working then. God is always working. God is working to fulfill his promises to us, always. There may be long spans of time in between. After all, this promise of Messiah, which is what this is, was 800 years before its fulfillment. That takes a lot of patience, beloved. And whatever you see around you and the promises that you're waiting for, they may not happen Monday. What we're talking about today and the final placement of the government on the shoulders of Jesus Christ forever might not happen this Tuesday. But it will happen. And that's the great reason to rejoice. And, and he takes a sweep of history here. And, and he says, because, verse 4, you know, rejoice, rejoice. Do you not, have you forgotten what God has done? And then he talks about the day of Midian's defeat. That's going way back. What is the day of Midian's defeat that he's talking about? When all looks lost, he says, remember Gideon. Remember the story of Gideon. Remember when the, the, the landscape looked impossible, there was... There were 135,000 Midianites arrayed against a small, small army of Israel. That small, small army was about 32,000. We won't take time to go back to Judges 8 and 6 to 8, but, but you, you can go back there and look. And, and, that, and that was the story of the lappers and the lickers. You remember that story? How many remember the lappers and the lickers? Sure you do. There are 32,000 people going up against 135,000 Midianites, approximately four to one, they were outnumbered. And God said, you know what? The numbers are too great in Israel's favor. What? 32, we only have 32,000, they have 135,000. No, the odds are too great. You'll, you'll defeat the Midianites and then you'll take credit yourself. You'll boast that you had a great army. So tell all the fearful just to go home. So about 10,000 were afraid. Send the Freddy cats home. They left. There was 22,000 left. God says, ah, it's still too big. So I'll just go to the, go to the River Jordan and uh, I'm going to separate these people out. The lappers and the lickers. Those who dipped their heads right in the water and drank versus those who scooped up the water and drank it from their hands. As it turned out, the uh, 22,000 was reduced to 300 people. God said, now those are numbers I can work with. 300 against 135,000. I alone will get credit for the victory. So Isaiah's reminding them, do you remember, remember that great Midian thing? 
When it all looked lost, it looked like we couldn't possibly succeed or survive this thing. Do you remember what God did? Rejoice. Rejoice in the memory of God at work. And he says, and furthermore, as I'm on the theme of warfare, I want you to know there's coming a day when every warrior's boot that's used for battle and every blood-stained garment of warfare, battle fatigues will be burned. War wear will become fuel for comfort. As I, as I plan to end ultimately oppression on this world and to end oppression is to end all wars. There's coming a day when there will never ever be a war again. That's the promise of God. So rejoice, he says to God's people. And, and you know, in other places in the scriptures, particularly for instance, Psalm 46, 9, it talks about um, uh, you know, the weapons of warfare being uh, burned and destroyed. This talks about such an extensive end to war that you even burn the battle fatigues and the war boots. And presumably, if you can, if you can burn the garments that you use for warfare, surely all the weapons are already done in. This is an extreme description for us to, 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 to rejoice in the Lord. But the biggest cause for rejoicing it's not just their memory of, of great battle victories by God or, or the fact that there's coming a day there will be no wars. But there's coming a person, a glorious person. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. There is coming, says the prophet, a great government handover a righteous globalism is coming, and it's a forever one. So rejoice to those of you perplexed, to those of you who are watching the, the governments around the world implode and make decisions that oppress people. There is coming a one. For those who are trying to independently manufacture their own globalism, their own unrighteous and oppressive globalism. There is coming a righteous globalism, handover forever. So rejoice, God's people. And you notice what he says here, the yoke that burdens, I'm back at verse four now, the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders the rod of their oppressors will be placed on him. That's why when Jesus was identifying himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, listen to the parallel, how he says it. You, you probably already know where I'm going with this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the yoke that burdens them? The bar across their shoulders? The rod of oppression? Jesus says, come to me. I'm shouldering that. I'm the one who was prophesied. 
You can read of it in, from Genesis 3.15 all the way through your Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7.13, Daniel 2.44, 7.13 and 14, Zechariah 14.9. A person is coming. God's truth isn't fuzzy ideas, but rather a specific action to be witnessed. And we are on the way far side of this prophecy. Keep in mind, the people in this moment had not yet encountered Messiah. They were surrounded, or the, the, the battle, uh, the sabers were rattling from the Assyrian army in the north. This is why it was great news, as, as is stated here, with respect to Zebulun and Naphtali. From the Jezreel Valley northward uh, through to Mount Hermon, which today is called the Galilee region, the way of the sea. That's what the, the prophet's talking about here. The, the place where the fierce Assyrian army... By the way, when the Assyrians captured you, they didn't just put you to death. They tortured you. They tortured you so that all of the surrounding nations would be in a state of terror. So that the nations around, rather than fight them, would just surrender because it, you don't die a quick death against the Assyrians. You die a slow, torturous Painful death. This is what the people of God were facing at that moment. We're on, the, we're on the way far side of the fulfillments of this glorious prophecy. We're not there yet. We still, there's still a long way to go. But we have seen with our own eyes, we know that the promise has in its um, invisible form at this stage of Christ ruling and reigning it is already happening. They had nothing. And so God allowed his people to be bullied for a while to give full and justifiable or dem demonstrably justifiable evidence for his pending wrath and judgment. Now, by the way, in our day, era is already being revealed, Romans chapter 1, as God continues to withdraw from the minds of those around us so that they continue their depravity into an ever-spiraling abyss of foolishness and illogic that we scratch our heads at and say, this is absurd. It's evidence of the wrath of God being revealed all around us. Now all placed on him. And you'll notice here that the prophet never mentions the words, he mentions the words government, he mentions the words reign, he mentions the words kingdom in this text that we've just read, but he never mentions the word king. Perhaps 
as um, Oswald, the one commentator states, the kings of Israel and Judah had so tainted the title king that God chose not to put the title king on Messiah in this text. But he does put some pretty amazing titles on him. That's where we want to go secondly here. The resume, this amazing resume, God's great resume here. Christmas is set in motion by prophetic fiat here, in spite of the fact that it was uh, planned from eternity past. But here you have uh, the Christmas event uh, being spelled out for us in a most fascinating and amazing way, uh, resume reveal. Now, in our modern day and age, we, we all know now about the big gender reveal deal, right? Eh, we're all being involved in that. When I was having kids, we weren't doing the gender reveal thing. It was, you know, hey, we want to be surprised the day that little baby pops out, you know? What, what is this baby? Boy, girl. Tell everybody, hey, it was a boy. It was a girl. I went into the maternity room with my, my wife. Never one time did I know what we were having. Had I, we probably would have made some differences. No, I'm just kidding. But today, the, the big deal is the gender reveal. Well, you know, because we have scientific methods now, we can tell you everything, you know, we can see inside and can tell everything what's going on. We didn't have those back in it. God's been gender revealing since the beginning. You all know that, right? He's been telling people who they've been going to have, you're going to have a son. Gender reveal is not a big deal for God. One thing that none of us have ever been able to do is a resume reveal. Have any of you been able to you know, give a resume reveal of your kids? Huh? I don't think so. We don't, we don't lay out a resume. But this is a resume reveal. This, this tells us Messiah, the coming Messiah, his resume is laid out for us here. 800 years before. So, it says here... Um, Notice that a child is born juxtaposed to a son being given. In, in this very text, you have the description of a very human birth. A child is born with an already existent person. A son is given. You have in this one line a stunning combination of the description or the declaration of an incarnate God. You have the pre-existent Son of God being given and born as a child. So the one-of-a-kind Two natures of Messiah is revealed for us here in this resume. So when everybody was perplexed and arguing and fighting and, and, and uh, rejecting Jesus and his, his declarations of divinity, they were in fact rejecting the prophecy of God from this very text it should have been no mystery to the religious teachers of the time 
that Messiah would have two natures, the nature of human birth and son given. There's been a consistent presentation through God's word of all that's happened and has happened and is happening. So perhaps we've come to the place finally in human nature that we are uh, ready to admit that human solutions to governance are a big fail. I'm pretty much there. Yeah, human solutions to governance are a fail. They're a total bust and need to be radically reformed. And that's what I love about this text. There is a day coming when we won't have to hold our nose and vote for the lesser of two or three evils. We have this one, this grand and great leader. The invisible reign of Jesus Messiah has begun, by the way, through the visible presence of his church. We are the visible presence of the reigning Messiah today in Oshawa. That's who we are. That's why, that's why church is so essential. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is visibly represented by the presence of the church of Jesus Christ. Messiah's king now, and all governments everywhere always are subject to him. Whether you are a conservative or a liberal or a libertarian, whether you're left or right or center, whether you're black, red, yellow, white, green, I guess Mandalorian, um, whether you're male, female, or confused, whether you're a Leaf fan, I'll juxtapose confused and Leaf fan together, or a Bruin fan, there is, there was, and there always, always will be one Messiah. And he is the Son of God. And he is our soon coming King. Praise God. Now let's quickly look at his resume with a few moments that we have, because you know this so well. Rejoice, rejoice, because he is the wonderful counselor. An end of fuzzy confusion. He is the certain one. Y'all feeling a little bit like, who do we believe right now? I, I, that's where I'm at. Who do you believe? Who, who's telling me the truth? I, I feel like I'm, who, who should I trust right now? Because I don't know. I don't know who to believe. I don't know who to trust. I know what to trust. I know who to trust. But in, human, in our human circles, I don't know who to trust. I don't know who to believe. We're supposed to believe the experts. You go find your expert, I'll go find my expert. I can find an expert to agree with everything I say. And so can you find an expert to agree with everything you say. That's what makes up our court system. Both sides always bring in their experts. They're at one expert, tells them this story, the other expert tells them that story. There's all kinds of experts. In fact, there were 100 students, 100 math students this week in the news. You see this? 100 students in, in University of British Columbia cheated on their math midterm. 100 students. These are our future experts, okay? They're cheating on math exams at university. Anybody who's been to university has hung out with experts. 
I don't need to say much more about that. But this counselor is a wonderful counselor. And he's wonderful because he's unfailing in the depth of his wisdom. He is the source of wisdom itself, Isaiah 40, verse 13. He invented wisdom. So who do you trust? Who do you believe? Who do you turn to? I know who I turn to, the wonderful counselor. I know that I can trust what he says every single time. And not only that, he's a mighty God. He brings order and calm and control. He's El Gabor, chapter 10, verse 21. Literally, as it's been explained away by the liberals, he's, he's the, the real God. He is the true God. There's no disorder beyond the control of our God to bring into order and calm and control. So don't be distressed, but rather rejoice. There's no coercion with him. He doesn't need to, he doesn't need to politicize all of his decisions and, and, and check the polls to see who's agreeing with him. No, no, he doesn't need to do that to make sure that he might get elected next time. He, he doesn't trade in people's best interests to, to poll votes. He doesn't oppress and, and, and suppress the truth for submission. No, he tells us the truth because he's mighty God. There's no authority with greater power than him. And humble hearts receive power to submit and obey him. So the fussing and the fomenting, the posturing and the strategizing, read Psalm 2 someday. Psalm 2 verses 1 to 6 and you'll find out what God thinks about all of this hoopla around us. It says he looks at it and laughs and scoffs. He's the everlasting father. Literally the father of eternity. Uh, many tyrants over the ages have called themselves the father of their nation. But only one can call himself the father of eternity. You know, when, when we talk about something like a founding father of something, you've heard that terminology used. Do you realize that this Messiah is the founding father of everlasting? When you're talking about forever and ever, he's the founding father of forever and ever. Who do you turn to for forever life? Don't you turn to the founding father of eternal life? That's who he is. There's no better in charge. He's the best government ever because he's the original designer. Who will, by the way, be there for you forever. You know, governments come and go. And they know that they can leave their mess to the next government that's following them. This Messiah is the permanent government. He doesn't leave his mess because he has no mess. And finally, he's the Prince of Peace. Conflict-free forever. Beloved, and those of you watching online, there's only one way for peace with God. And that's you have to have a relationship with the Prince of Peace. Because the Prince of Peace brings peace with God. And interesting, rather, rather than smash and kill his enemies, you know what Messiah does? He makes those at enmity with him his friends. I, I'm sure at the time of the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, when he was Paul the murderer, Paul the killer, 
I'm sure that all kinds of God's people were saying, and Lord, kill Saul. Because he's, he's going around killing us. So Lord, please kill Saul. <laughs> that would have been a really bad strategy. Rather than kill Saul of Tarsus, Jesus makes him his friend. And he becomes the most zealot of all apostles. An ambassador for Christ. So as we think about our mission as ambassadors of reconciliation and the people who persecute us and abuse us and wrongfully treat us, and we so easily want to say, Lord, why don't you just wipe them out? Why don't you just kill them? Here's our prayer. Lord, make them your friend. Because if you make them your friend, they'll be our friend and they'll love us. Only Jesus can repair the rift between God and man. That's the text. That's the the reality of the gospel. Let me close with um, just sharing a little bit of the essence of a sermon by N.T. Wright, Pastor N.T. Wright, British uh, guy. Don't buy into all of his theology, so understand that, but he did a good job on Christmas Eve 2008 in England. And in his sermon on that night, Christmas Eve, he talked about the world that was starving and hungry for hope. Now, this is 12 years ago. Listen up again. This is 12 years ago. And if any of you remember what was happening Christmas Eve 2008, or say November through to Christmas Eve 2008, that was when President Barack Obama became president-elect. And in N.T. Wright's sermon that night, he quoted Oprah. Not favorably, by the way, but he quoted Oprah. And Oprah said on that election night in November of 2008, this, there has never been a night like this on planet Earth. That's what she said. Okay? In reference to November, whatever it would be, November 3rd, 4th, 5th, something like that, 2008, there has never, had never been a night like this on planet Earth. N.T. Wright called that irrational joy and irrational hope that anybody would direct that kind of a statement at a human leader. He went on to say in his sermon, Jesus Christ, Messiah, is the real promise of hope. And the powers of the world are doing their best to hush up that hope. And he says this, hence, the present push towards disestablishing the church. This is 12 years ago. You understand what's happening right now? It's an ongoing, since the time of the sinful fall in Eden, to shut down the good message of Jesus Christ. 
he continues to write this because the powers around us are saying, let's get God off the public square in case he upsets our business as usual. The only conspiracy I buy into is that one. All of the things that are going on, all the machinations that are human inventions and all of that stuff are way above the pay grade of the intelligence of the human race. So I'm not buying any of this, these things. I am buying one big conspiracy, and that is to muzzle the message of Messiah. That's the big conspiracy. And that's what's going on right now. And the powers to be have no idea why they're seeking to disestablish the church. But it's because of Messiah. So as this text ends, or as this, our, our, our teaching in this text ends this morning, there is a great purging that's taking place among us, just like there was then. Cleansing fires of God's judgment are happening around us and in the so-called family of God. Separating out the real from those who are just consumer-convenienced people of uh, church attendance or those who have been using God for all of the wrong purposes. Now more than ever, when it looks like all is lost, it is imperative for us to keep our eyes on the prize of Messiah. Our methods and our ways that we've been doing things are not mandatory. God is always able to do new things. But what is absolutely essential for us is not so much the how of the prophets, prophecy, but the what of the prophecy. And his name is Jesus Messiah. And so I want to leave you all with one last question. And that is this. In these last days, whether judgment or hope will be God's last word to you. And it's up to you. Would you turn your life over to Jesus Christ that you might live in hope? If you fail to turn your life over to Jesus Christ, you must live under the judgment of God. Keep your eyes on the prize. And to Oprah, I will say this. It was at Christmas time that there was never, ever a night and never will be like that one until Jesus Christ returns again. For unto us a child was born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders forever and ever. Amen? Amen. God, thank you so much. Lord, we applaud you. We love you. We adore you. We worship you. We praise you. And we thank you. You're an awesome God. And thank you for Messiah Jesus and the government on his shoulders, oh God. Thank you for stirring our hearts and calming our minds. 
in Jesus' name, amen, amen.